This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am your teacher, Jeremy Myers. Today we're looking at the conversation between Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Do you think it was wrong for Eve to engage in dialogue with the serpent? If not, what was the mistake there? Was there a mistake, was there a mistake at all? And what can you and I learn about this conversation between Eve and the serpent that will help us face temptation in our own life? It's these sorts of questions we're looking at today as we consider Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Before we get there, though, I want to sort of give you an insight into one of the things I use in my Bible study preparation, my podcast preparation, my book writing, my podcast, uh, blog post writing, all of that. Uh, one of the Bible software tools I use is BibleWorks. Um, I, I use a couple different Bible software tools. I've mentioned uh, one of them in the past, but BibleWorks is my preferred go-to Bible software tool for Greek and Hebrew study. If I'm going to be doing something in Greek or Hebrew, I open up Bible Works. Uh, it's also really good just comparing Bible translations. It contains more than 250 Bible translations. Uh, 45 of these are original language texts. It has uh, grammar references, a bunch of reference works. Uh, you get Greek and Hebrew vocabulary flashcards, pronunciation Bible maps, uh, lots of images from Israel. You can even have the Greek uh, New Testament read out loud to you. <laughs> uh, several Greek and Hebrew grammars as well. Um, if you want to learn how to parse Greek and Hebrew words, it'll do that. If you don't know what parsing is, well, it does it for you. <laughs> uh, diagramming. I don't know if you've ever done, tried to do Greek and Hebrew sentence diagramming, but uh, it does that for you also. Anyway, BibleWorks is by far the best concordance and keyword study tool, Bible study software tool I have ever used. It doesn't have some of the other study resources like commentaries and things like that, which you'll find in other software. Uh, but when it comes to Greek and Hebrew keyword Bible study software, BibleWorks is the best. I, I literally use it every single day in my study. Anyway, uh, it is available for both Windows and Mac computers. Uh, BibleWorks 10 comes on a USB flash drive. It's easy to install. Uh, it's only $389 right now. Uh, that includes free shipping on Amazon when you buy it through my link. So just go to redeeminggod.com slash BibleWorks, and uh, that'll take you directly to where you can get it for $389 with free shipping. BibleWorks software. Want to do Greek and Hebrew word study? Can't go wrong with BibleWorks. So today we're going to be looking at Genesis 3, 1 through 5, where we have this conversation between the serpent and the woman about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, now, this episode of the One Verse podcast builds upon what we've seen in episodes 37, 38, and 39. We laid a lot of foundation work for today's study in those episodes. So if you haven't listened to those, go back, make sure you listen to those first, episodes 37, 38, and 39. 
What we see in this conversation is that there's two statements from the serpent and then one statement from the woman in this conversation between the two of them. So let's look at each of these in turn. Genesis 3.1 contains the first statement from the serpent. And what happens is, is the serpent approaches the woman as she's beneath the tree. We looked at why she might have been under the tree in, in, in episode 38. Um, anyway, the serpent finds her there and says, Has God indeed said... You shall not eat of every tree in the garden? So, through this question, what's going on here is the serpent sort of twists and distorts what God has said. Uh, God told Adam, you may recall back from Genesis 2, that he may eat from any tree in the garden except one. And so the serpent comes and he, he basically turns it around and says, Did God really say you cannot eat from every tree in the garden? So the, the question the serpent asks is the exact opposite of what God actually said. And so because of that, the answer really should be quick and simple. <laughs> the answer should be according to what God had said. The answer should be, no, God said that we can eat from any tree in the garden except the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of course, I, I, if Eve had answered that way, I, I imagine that the serpent still could have had some follow-up questions. You know, it, it could have said, why? You know, why would God want to stop you from eating this tree? You know, what's he hiding from you? Does he not want you to be wise? Does he want, doesn't, does he not want you to know the difference between good and evil? You know, what's he holding back from you? That sort of conversation might have resulted if Eve had accurately stated what God said. But um, the, the problem really isn't so much with the conversation here. The problem, I believe, is that she is engaging with the serpent in dialogue by herself. I don't know if you remember, back in Genesis 2, we've been looking at these revolutionary foundational truths from Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, which pretty much help us understand the rest of Scripture, all of life and theology and culture, all sorts of things, okay? Your marriage relationship, your family relationships, how you get along with your neighbors, all of that. There's some foundational revolutionary truths here in Genesis 2 and 3. The first one, if you remember, was that humans are made for relationships. And so the problem that is occurring here in this conversation is that Eve is not facing this conversation with the serpent within her relationship. She is facing it alone. She's going it alone. You need to understand, there's really nothing wrong with the conversation itself. There's nothing inherently wrong with questions, asking questions. I think sometimes, you know, Christians see that the serpent's asking questions here, and so they get this idea, oh, we shouldn't ask questions of God's Word. We shouldn't challenge God's Word. We shouldn't, you know, let other people ask questions or challenge. I got an email just this week from somebody who's super upset at me for asking questions about God's Word, because, and they literally said in the email, we should not question God's Word. Well, I'm not questioning God's Word exactly. I'm trying to understand it in a more deeper and fuller way. Anyway, it's because of what's going on here in Genesis 3 that some Christians have that idea. But you must understand there's nothing wrong with questions. If truth is really truth, it can stand up to any and all questions. And if what we believe is not the truth, the only way to discover that is by asking questions. So we can't take away the lesson here, don't ask questions. The lesson here is that when questions come, face them within the midst of your relationship. And that's what Eve does not do. She's here, a question gets asked, and she tries to handle it alone, outside of relationship. Of course, 
we will discover next week when we look at verses 6 and 7, she's actually not alone. Adam is right there with her, but she doesn't invite him into the conversation. Of course, uh, actually, we'll see, the fault is mostly with him. Uh, she is not at fault. Again, something we've seen in a previous episode, it's, it's him that's at fault. Uh, but Adam and Eve, the bottom line is Adam and Eve should have responded to the serpent together. Humans are made for relationships. It, it means that everything in life must be faced within a relational support system. Theological questions, you know, issues with temptation, life decisions, they're all better dealt with inside of a relationship with other human beings. And I don't know what that relationship might be. Maybe your spouse, maybe a parent, maybe even your children, close friends. Who knows? Um, Don't try to face anything alone. That's the point of what's going on here in this conversation between the woman and the serpent. So anyway, the serpent asks this question, and she answers it alone by herself in verses 2 and 3. She says this, We may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden. But the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. All right, so (laughs) there are so many things going on here with her answer to the serpent's question. First, um, notice how she imitates the serpent. Uh, Again, I don't know if you remember, the first foundational truth from Genesis 2 and 3 was that humans are built for relationships. The second foundational truth from Genesis 2 and 3 was that humans were made to imitate. And so what she does here is she imitates the serpent. Ultimately, what we saw that we, we, we are to imitate God and then one another, but here the woman imitates the serpent. She does this in a number of ways, but... For example, the the question of the serpent is an exaggeration. He greatly exaggerates the prohibition of God. Um, The serpent says, Did God really say you cannot eat from every tree in the garden? Uh, It's an exaggeration of what God did, in fact, say. So notice how the woman responds. She says, Oh no, we can eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, just not the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden. In fact, God said, don't even touch it, lest you die. Now, is that what God said? No, he didn't say that. That is an exaggeration of what this, what God had said. So, the serpent exaggerated God's prohibition, and so now Eve does the same thing. She also exaggerates God's prohibition. Now, The question, really, is where did this exaggeration come from? Did the woman come up with it herself? Maybe. Or is it something that Adam came up with and told to Eve? The truth is, the answer to that question is something we will never know this side of eternity. Whether Adam came up with the exaggeration himself or if Eve came up with it right here on the spot, Here's the thing. It doesn't really matter who came up with it. Adam, as we'll see in verse 6, was right there with Eve listening to this conversation, and it was his responsibility to speak up and make sure that God's command was properly stated. But he didn't, and he remained silent. He stayed out of the conversation. He, he stayed out of the relationship, 
and he let his wife engage the serpent on her own as she imitated the serpent in exaggerating what God said. Okay, so really, ultimately, whoever came up with this exaggeration in the first place, the fault ultimately lies with Adam. Okay, so uh, Eve imitates the serpent in exaggerating God, but exaggeration isn't the only way that Eve imitates the serpent. Uh, You don't pick it really up in English, uh, but in Hebrew, here's where Bible works will help you. Uh, In verse 1, the serpent says to the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat from every tree in the garden? Now, the the serpent is speaking to the woman here, but that that word you is not singular, it's plural. Uh, Down in Texas, they'd say, (laughs) Y'all. I lived there for a while. You all, you know, y'all, that's how they say it. Uh, You go back, actually, and look at Genesis 2.17 when the command was actually given, and there it was singular, the singular you. So, um, now, obviously, God wanted Adam to pass on this instruction to others. It wasn't just an instruction for Adam. It was also an instruction for all who came from Adam. Remember, Adam was the priest in God's temple, and part of Adam's responsibilities was to teach and instruct others as well. So, the first person he was supposed to teach and instruct was Eve. So, here in verses 2 and 3, when Eve responds to the, de- uh, to the serpent, it's, it's interesting because the serpent uses the plural you, y'all. And when Eve responds to him, she once again imitates him in his plural pronoun. Uh, what she says is, Y'all shall not eat it, nor shall y'all touch it, lest y'all die. Okay, all three of those uses of you there are plural. And again, it may seem like sort of a minor point, but it's not. In imitating the serpent this way, what Eve has done is insert herself into a conversation in which she was not actually present. Uh, She's putting herself where she was not. Uh, She was acting as if when God gave this command, she was right there too, listening to it. In reality, she wasn't there at all. So she she imitates a serpent in exaggerating what God said, and she imitates the serpent in using the plural you, y'all, which causes her to insert herself into the conversation between God and Adam about the forbidden tree, and it is this that causes her to not turn to Adam for input. The imitation of the serpent causes her to not depend on the relationship in her life. She goes it alone because she thinks, you know, I was basically there. I mean, you know, not long after this, I came from Adam's side and, and he told me what, what God said. And so technically, I don't know exactly what she's thinking. But the point is she inserts herself where she was not. And that causes her to think that she is accurately reporting, quoting what God had said, when in fact she is not. By inserting herself into a conversation that she wasn't present at, she answers the serpent, when really what she should have done is turned to Adam, who was right there with her, and said, Hey, Adam, you were there. I wasn't. Tell me again, what was it that God told to us? What exactly was it that God said to you? I just I know you told me before, Adam, but I just want to check because the serpent here, you know, he's asking some questions. And I want to make sure I quote God correctly. I want to make sure I get it right. When you are facing questions, doubts, fears, temptations, struggles, any sort of issue in life, don't try to go it alone. 
Turn to other people for wisdom, insight, help, advice, support. And when you bring God into it, make sure you are accurately portraying what God has said, accurately quoting what God has said. We don't have time to look at it today, but over in the temptations, when, when the ser- Satan comes and, and tempts God, uh, Jesus in the wilderness, like in Luke chapter 4, you may not know it, but there's a couple times in there where the serpent quotes scripture. But if you go back and look at the scriptures that Satan quotes, he misquotes scripture every time. All right, and uh, Jesus accurately quotes scripture. So, um, again, when you're facing questions, don't say, don't ask questions. You know, questions are fine. Questions are healthy. Questions are good. But instead, turn to other people for help. And uh, Eve does not do that. She faces it alone. So, and she exaggerates what God has said. She inserts the plural you instead of the singular, even though she wasn't there. And because of all this, in verses 4 and 5, the serpent strikes. He says, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, the first, serpent, or first statement by the serpent is, You'll not surely die. And it's a little different in Hebrew than the way we usually understand it. Sometimes people get the idea that, that the serpent is contradicting God here. Because uh, back in 2.17, God told Adam, In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so here in verse 4, the serpent says, You will not surely die. And people say, Oh, a contradiction. But not really. When, when, when you understand, when you look at the verb tenses and sort of what the serpent says here compared to what God said, uh, the serpent here is saying something closer to, eh, don't think that death is such an immediate threat. The, the serpent is not saying that death will not come. It's only saying that death will not come today, that they will not die today, in the day you eat of it. You, know, you won't die that day. And really, when you go back and look at what God has said, that actually agrees with what God has said. Um, back there in, in Genesis 2.17, the Hebrew there can also be understood a little bit differently than we often take it. And I, Look, if you think that God says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, well, when they eat of it, they don't die. Uh, lots of Christians like to say that Adam and Eve died spiritually, and I, I suppose that's true. I don't have any argument there, but I don't think that that's the way the original text is understood. I think this is referring to physical death. And so even there in, in, in Genesis 2.17, when God says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, I, again, I think it's more like uh, death will be introduced into your life. You will begin the process of being separated from eternal life. From, from, you will begin the process of death, that sort of a thing. Um, they're thinking about physical death. I believe God is referring to physical death. And that's what God's referring to in 2.17 and also what the serpent is referring to here. In the day you, you could understand it this way. In the day you eat of it, you will be doomed to die. That's what God is saying back in Genesis 2.17. And the serpent is saying something similar. Ah, you won't die today. It's not an immediate threat. And uh, that is what happens later in chapter 3. As we see there, they, when they eat of the tree, they are cast out of the garden. And because of that, they are separated from the tree of life, which is what allowed them to live forever. So, when all is sort of taken together, the serpent here is really just agreeing with what God had stated earlier. The serpent is not contradicting God. God said, in the day you eat of it, you will be doomed to die. And the serpent says, eh, 
If you eat it, yeah, death's not an immediate threat. Don't worry about that right now. That's the way it works. Don't worry about the consequences. And that's how temptation always works. You know, don't, 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 just enjoy it. Live for today. Don't think about the future. You know, uh, temptations, when they come, they rarely contradict God. Instead, they just say, you know, put the consequences up. They're insignificant. They don't matter very much. Worry about that some other time. Enjoy it now. Pay later. That's essentially what the serpent says to the woman in verse 4. Yeah, verse 5 backs up that idea. The serpent says, you know, God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That phrase, your eyes will be open, it, it doesn't mean they're blind, obviously. Nobody thinks that. It means that they will gain wisdom. It's used that way in other Hebrew scriptures, Isaiah 42.7, Jeremiah 32.19 examples. Uh, the serpent says, uh, look at this, though. the serpent says next, you will be like God. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The serpent is offering to them something that they already were. <laughs> they were already like God. According to Genesis 1, 26 and 27, the man and the woman together were made in the image and what? Likeness of God. <laughs> the serpent is offering something that they already have from God. Again, this is also the way temptations often work. Temptations, the ones that often confront us in life, are often the temptations to get for ourselves that which we already have in God. Temptation is to get the good things God has given us, but in a way that is apart from God, apart from the way he wants us to receive them. The temptations that Jesus faced, again, going back to Luke 4, or looking forward to Luke 4, uh, are, are identical. There's three temptations there that Jesus faced. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and, and the pride of life. But uh, the devil, the, the things when you go look at it, the, the things that the devil offered Jesus are actually things that Jesus was already offered from God. And so what the devil is offering to Jesus is just a way of getting them apart from God or outside of God's plan and purposes and timing. It's a shortcut, really, is what he's offering. I, I have some, I've preached on those texts in the past. I'll, I'll include some links in the show notes. You can go read those texts or even listen to the sermons if you want, where I talk about those temptations that Jesus faced in um, the wilderness from, from Luke chapter 4. Uh, the, anyway, here in Genesis 3, the, the most significant words in this conversation between the serpent and the woman are found right there at the end of verse 5. Uh, the serpent says, if you eat from the tree, you will gain the knowledge of good and evil. Again, the serpent's not lying here. He's telling the truth. When they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they do gain the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, you might remember from previous episodes, though, you know, what this is, is a type of knowledge that is reserved for God alone, because God alone is omniscient. God alone knows everything. He alone gets to judge between right and wrong, good and evil, and tell us what is right and wrong and good and evil. Now, I do want to say there's been some questions that come up about this, because you and I, we, you know, we are, to some degree, as we see in Scripture, able to discern and judge and, and make distinctions between right and wrong, good and evil. We have to do it in our own lives, and and with people we listen to and hang out with, all sorts of things. So, you know, the question comes up, what, we were always supposed to depend on God? Well, yes, we were. But I believe that this knowledge of good and evil was something that God was planning on or intending to train Adam and Eve in. 
Uh, he ultimately is the decider of right and wrong, good and evil, but I believe it was something that they were going to, you know, for lack of a better term, he was going to disciple them in. He was going to raise them up and teach them how to make these sorts of decisions, judgments, distinctions, discernments on their own between good and evil, right and wrong. Okay, so uh, the serpent, though, is offering them the shortcut here. Oh, you want it now? Eat the fruit. Uh, And of course, in eating it, they're not going to gain the omniscience, the all-knowledge of God, being able to know everything. And so when they do gain the knowledge of good and evil, they are unable to make accurate judgments. Uh, We'll see some of this in verses 6 and 7 when we look at that next week. So uh, that's the conversation between Eve and the serpent. We'll see the responses next week. Uh, By way of closing out today's episode, I I, want to just point out to you um, what's going on here, and I just want to focus on this idea of um, that they shouldn't touch the fruit. Um, What this is called is fencing around the law, and I've talked about this in a previous episode, but it is something that very often gets done in religion. Remember, one of the purposes of my One Verse podcast is to help liberate you from the shackles of religion. And we see something here going on that very often happens in religion. I want to point it out to you so that you can be free from it. It's this fencing around the law. What happens is, is God gives us a law, a command, and something we should or should not do. Fine, wonderful. But then what happens is we take this law or command and we say, well, okay, I want to obey God. So, to help myself obey God, I'm going to create a bunch of additional laws, additional rules, and add them to the law of God so that, you know, it creates a little fence. As long as I don't go over the fence, then I can also make sure I won't break the law of God. Uh, And this practice of fencing around the law is uh, very, very common in religion. And we sort of understand the logic of it, where it comes from, and why people do it. Um, The problem, though, is, well, there's numerous problems. There's four problems with this practice of fencing around the law. First of all, what happens is when we fence around the law, we call bad that which God has called good, right? The actual law of God usually gets confused or equated even with these fences, these man-made laws that we construct around God's law. And so usually what happens is the fences we create, the prohibitions we create, they're good and acceptable, okay practices, things we can do. But when we create laws prohibiting them, we are taking something that God said is okay, and we are saying it is not okay. We are taking something God made as good, and we are calling it bad. Uh, In the Gospels, we see this happen all the time. God told the Israelite people to not work on the Sabbath. All right, so what does that mean? Well, the problem is the Bible doesn't tell very much what that means. And so the Jewish people created all of these laws, thousands of laws, hundreds and hundreds, and just all these laws to try to help them not break the Sabbath. They created a fence around the Sabbath law. So Jesus comes along and he challenges most of these fences. For example, um, the disciples are walking through the grain fields and they're picking grain and rubbing it between their hands. Well, this was a sin, according to the Jewish tradition, the laws that they had constructed. 
but not according to the way God had initially planned or intended the Sabbath law to be. So Jesus challenges that man-made law. It was not a sin at all. They were calling evil something God had said to be good. Same with he heals this man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. And again, according to the man-made traditions that had been built up around the Sabbath law, that was a sin. But God said, no. Jesus says, no, that's not a sin. This was the entire purpose of the Sabbath. You're calling evil something God made to be good. We, we do similar things today, you know, in the New Testament, in Ephesians. Uh, do not get drunk with wine. So we see that and we say, okay. But then we create a fence which says, you know what? It's safest to just not even drink. Obviously, if you don't even drink, then you can't get drunk. The problem is, is God never said that. And so we go around condemning people who have a glass of wine or a shot of whiskey or drink a beer with their hamburger or whatever, and and we condemn everybody who drinks alcohol as a sinner, right? But God doesn't condemn those who drink alcohol. He simply said, don't get drunk. All right, and there's reasons for that even as well. Various texts in the Bible say that wine can be good and enjoyable. Alcohol can be a blessing in life. So if we call it evil, then we are disagreeing with God, and we are setting ourselves up as judge. Again, problems with the knowledge of good and evil popping up all over the place here. These fences around the law become ways that we condemn other people. So, um, and these, these criticisms and condemnations, it can actually lead us to break God's laws. And that's sort of what we see happen here. When, when we build the fence around the law, and then we transgress, we pass, we climb over, we break down the fence, and then nothing bad happens to us, we sort of shrug our shoulders and say, well, Lord, God told me if I break this law, certain bad things would happen to me, but I just broke this law, which was the fence, not the actual law, and nothing bad happened to me, so therefore I guess God wasn't serious, God was lying. I can go ahead and and break this other law too, which is the actual law that God told us not to do, and that's when the bad things happen. You see, these fences sort of lull us, lure us into actually breaking the law, because when we break the fence, the man-made laws, and nothing bad happens to us, we think God wasn't serious about the law, when really he was very serious. That's why he warned us about it, and he didn't want us to create that fence in the first place. Breaking the man-made human laws, the fence, leads us to thinking it's okay to break God's laws. Finally, when the serpent sees that Eve has exaggerated the prohibition, you know, she built this fence around the law, don't even touch it. Uh, What happens is that is when the serpent pounces. Most of the temptations that you are going to experience in life, if you actually look at them, Most of the temptations are based on getting us to break the fences, the religious man-made laws that we have built around the laws. The serpent knows, the tempter knows that if he can get us to break those, it will be much more easier for us to break God's law as well. The fences become the opportunity for temptation. When Eve says, oh, we shouldn't even touch it lest we die, that is when the serpent says, you won't really die. The implication is, if you touch it, you're not going to (laughs) die. That's silly. Go ahead and pick it and see. And so when she picks it, she doesn't die. So what does she do? 
as we'll see next week, she assumes, well, I didn't die when I picked it, when I touched it, so that must mean I won't die when I eat it, either. When all is said and done, the fences around the law that we construct don't help us one bit. Instead, they only lead us deeper into temptation. So, do you want to love, follow, and obey God? Look, we've seen lots of ideas today about how to do this. First, make sure you're living in relationship with other people. We are built for relationships, and relationships help us resist temptation and accurately understand and follow God's Word. Second, remember the power and the peril of imitation. Imitation is a wonderful gift from God, but we must keep that imitation in check. We're to imitate God and those people who imitate God. Third and finally, look around for those walls you've built in your life, those fences around the law, and tear them down. God didn't build them, and you don't need them. What do you need? (laughs) Well, again, it's back to relationship, an imitation of God with, with one another. Understand that God loves you more than you could ever possibly know, and that No matter what good thing is offered to you, if it is really good, it's already made available to you from God in Jesus Christ. Serpent was only offering to Adam and Eve what they already had in God. When temptations come to you, recognize that you're only being offered what you already have. You just got to look around and see it. That's the main truth that we see from this week. Next week, we're going to look at Genesis 3, 6, and 7, which are, in my opinion, the most important verses in Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, Genesis 3, 6, and 7 are what these chapters are leading up to. They're the central verses, central verses in these two chapters, and then everything unfolds from these two verses as well. So you don't want to miss that episode. These two verses are foundational for all of Scripture. If you want to uh, leave a comment about this episode, ask a question, view the show notes, you can go to redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 3, 1 through 5. uh, There's places to leave a comment. Also, there's a link to that BibleWork software I told you about, uh, the most powerful Greek and Hebrew study software I have ever used. I use it every day. I use it to prepare for every One Verse podcast episode. So all of that is found at redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Hey, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week when we pick back up with Genesis 3, 6, and 7.